Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken. This is Monica Michelle for Explicitly Sick, one of the new podcasts on Invisible Not Broken. We are now a network, so this is going to be fun. Um, so today I was interviewing Sarah Ramey, um, who wrote the book, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, a memoir. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. I just want to do a quick little intro here and um, just get you right to the interview. And I just want to say first, um, there's a part where we're discussing allergies. And I think that if you're anyone who knows the podcast and knows us at all, we were not making light of allergies. We were talking more about hay fever and um, seasonal allergies. So I just wanted to put that out there as you're listening to it. If your eyebrows go all the way up to your hairline, please be aware we were not talking about, um, about allergies that were not like just seasonal and hay fever. This is in two parts. Um, the first part is mostly about Sarah's book and a lot that she went through. I just need to put some trigger warnings out there for you. We are definitely going to be discussing some seriously um, frightening things about the medical establishment, about um, what I would at least consider medical abuse. Um, so just be aware that it's something we are discussing. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please go to invisiblenotbroken.com. And right at the very top, you will have a... Um, um, go to Explicitly Sick. Uh, that's one of our new little sections of the network. And right at the very top, you'll be able to buy Sarah's book. I do not usually read memoirs. I am not always the biggest fan of reading nonfiction. I like to escape my world. I loved this book. Um, just unequivocally loved it. I think it's a very important book. And it's also a wonderful book to give to your physician or your pain clinic doctor or therapist um, or someone in your life who is not understanding what you're going through. I cannot recommend this book enough. And no, I'm not paid to say this. I This is just purely how I feel about this book. Um, enjoy this episode. It's going to be in two parts. Um, so tune in next week or the week after for part two. Fiction books. I, I'm more of a fantasy reader. So this was such an interesting book to read about everything you went through. And I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to kind of start with um, because anyone who's listening doesn't know what you have and what you've dealt with. So yeah. I'm going to start there, but I'm also going to say very quickly to buy the book immediately. And <laughs> the show notes, um, right at the very top of our show notes, is a link to click on and to buy Sarah's book, which, um, like I said, I'm not a big fan of memoirs. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I read this in about two days. And um, that's kind of slow and fast for me because I usually read like skim, but I couldn't skim your book because it was so engaging. Like mm -hmm. the first part was, um, a gut punch visceral like journey right with you in all of the I'm gonna say medical malpractice you don't have to say it because it's legal but there was a lot of medical <laughs> abuse like absolute medical abuse you went through that was very well written and then the twist at the end of like this journey of the feminine and masculine is um it was like mind-blowing so uh, if we could just kind of start with what you you went through because it was not a slow descent it was kind of fast in your 20s right um yeah it is a <laughs> it is a complicated story I will say that up front it's not like I, the thing I struggle with the most which I think is really familiar to a lot of people with chronic illness is that I don't have like a singular diagnosis and I didn't have just like a sudden onset of what it would be like for the whole time like it's 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 sort of morphed and changed and got a lot worse and then got better and it, so it's just been quite complicated but sort of in a nutshell uh you know I'm 39 now but I was at the time when it started which is very sad to think about it was so long ago now but I was 22 I was a senior in college and 
just very uh, healthy and normal. You know, I had some very minor gut health issues and that which I would would not have recognized as gut health issues at the time but I certainly had them and uh you know just some really minor minor nagging issues but I mean I never would have even dreamed of calling myself sick I just had some minor issues and then I started getting these UTIs that wouldn't go away and that also UTIs are tough but still I would have classified in the you know minor category of problems and but they they kept going kept going and so I finally went to a urologist that um performed uh, a procedure that you know I won't go into it's at the very beginning of the book it's this uh a procedure that essentially went wrong it was a botched your it's called a urethral dilation uh something went wrong during the procedure he made a mistake and uh Essentially, I, I within twelve hours, I had become septic. I had to be hospitalized. I had horrific pelvic pain, and then overnight, the big thing that changed was, you know, I had had some pelvic pain, and all of a sudden, I had just had like unbelievable pelvic pain. But also, the real mystery part, and this is very common for chronic fatigue syndrome, is that I just went from being like completely healthy and normal to just like mortal exhaustion 100% of the time, like just sleeping 18 hours a day, my muscles ached, I was, I just felt so sick, like I had the flu constantly. And in the beginning, it was, it was all just like a big muddle and everybody, my parents are physicians. And so, you know, everybody that was paying attention to this, no one knew that a mistake had been made in that original procedure. They just thought, you know, some unforeseen thing that nobody could under, understand had happened. And it was, it was unfortunate for me, but it certainly wasn't like somebody's fault. And all of the the fatigue and the aching and the pain, everybody was just like, you know, we don't know what that is, but surely it will just resolve because, you know, how could it not resolve? Like there was, nobody was saying like, well, actually, it's quite common for chronic fatigue syndrome to come on after, you know, a a sudden uh, event in the body, a car accident, a viral infection, something like that. That's very common. And I think now there is a better under, at least a little bit of a better understanding of like, oh, that that's what's happening here. Like this is unfortunately this, this poorly understood problem, but, but at least we can like put her in that category immediately and, and try to get her help for chronic fatigue syndrome and that family of problems. But that is not what happened. It was just like, it was, as I read about it, it's just this like rabbit hole opens up underneath you. It's not just me. It's under anybody that develops one of these problems and you just start falling, you know, past doctor after doctor after doctor, farther and farther away from your friends and your family. And nobody can figure out what's wrong with you and you're tested for literally everything. And essentially as the regular tests quote unquote came back negative, 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 then a new understanding of my illness started to emerge, which was that as one doctor said, like so many young women her age, uh, this is a psychological problem. And I just, (laughs) and then that, that understanding is like what sort of took over for, I mean, to this day, <laughs> um, but not for all of my doctors, but 
certainly still uh, quite a few, I think, still, if they hear that you have one of these types of problems, like, oh, I, I see, I understand, you're one of those, one of those women. And uh, yeah, and so, so anyway, so I had this event, developed what I, what I now would call chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's quite bad. And then also um, what we didn't understand at the time was a really bad um, injury to the pelvic nerves. And that, that because that wasn't diagnosed or understood at the time, that all of that scarring uh, created, that went untreated, created just this horrific neuralgia that, that then ballooned into this thing called uh, complex regional pain syndrome, which I also have just a very, very painful pain syndrome that spreads out over your body and is horrible. And so, so those are sort of the main things. It's like really bad pelvic pain, the spreading pain syndrome, and then chronic fatigue syndrome that there's like a real range of how severe that can be. It can be like this where I'm like up and talking to you, but we'll have to rest for a long time afterwards all the way. And that's like good. I feel like I'm in like a great place. (laughs) Like that's like a real success story. Um, But and and then as anybody that's experienced one of these problems, like the severe end of this is like, I mean, it is, it is, it is a living death. It is just, you can't do anything. You can't bathe. You can't feed yourself. You, a lot of people have to be on like a feeding tube. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a horror show. And so I've also been to that, that end of the spectrum as well. And so that, that is in a very large nutshell, that's kind of <laughs> all, all of, all of the problems. And that's sort of spread out over about 17 years. I think one of the the scary things about your story was that you're the person who someone who is sick would look at and go, Oh, okay. You've got the support. You have parents who are doctors. You have the best access to like the like Mayo clinic level doctors. And that's the scariest thing about this was those ones are the ones that seem to have failed you the hardest. That's true. <laughs> I mean, not your parents. I'm not saying your parents did, but like no, the, you had parents. like the uh, like the Mayo doctors, the these incredible like respected doctors are the ones who were seem to be the most abusive and the most um, negligent. Yes, I think that that is correct, and I and I actually think that part of that is because I do think that those doctors in particular see a lot of people like me be, or like people that have mystery illnesses because they are traveling all over the world trying to find help. And so they finally end up at like the top, top, top places. Like, okay, finally I'm going to get help here in this place. And those people, because they don't know anything about these illnesses, they really feel that it, my experience of this was that they really feel that it is a tremendous waste of their time and that these people are like, yeah, time wasters, malingerers, hypochondriacs, all of these horrible things like that it's just it 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 is abuse like it is not it's you have to imagine especially for diseases like this that can be so bad it's one thing if like we're talking about really bad allergies or something and you're like demanding to be taken seriously and, and not treated badly I agree that you should you should be taken seriously for your very bad allergies but we're not talking about that we're talking about like a totally incapacitating, debilitating, disabling disease that is treated as if it is not happening at all. And that is just like, so to have that happen to you over and over and over again is so psychologically disorienting and um, 
uh, debilitating. And that, that really is like the main, that is like the thing that for me, I focus on the most in terms of what I write about and talk about, because it is a, it's a misunderstanding on the doctor's part that is, that doesn't need to be happening, that there's no reason for that to be happening. There's no reason for it, for doctors to be, um, doing harm when that's the oath is to not do harm. Like this is, this is this area where it, it, with just like the smallest amount of education that could change in overnight. It's not like they have to go back to school and like relearn everything that they ever learned. Like they just need to read a few of the most recent studies about some of these problems to just be like, okay, for sure this, these are physiologic problems and I don't understand it, but I don't have to, treat this person like they're a time waster or they're, they're, they're a bad person or something like that. So that to me is like one of the most important things that just in terms of like the activism around this to change just that, that relationship between the doctor and the patient. They don't have to cure us. <laughs> I don't think anybody's even asking for that. I think that patients like us are just like, just don't treat me like human garbage. <laughs> That's it. That's the only thing. And that would make such a huge difference. One of my favorite lines in your book was uh, one of the Mayo doctors where you said like, after every sentence, it sounded like you were supposed to say thank you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like that was, <laughs> that one hit it a little close to home on some of the appointments I've seen. Um, that yeah. was brutal. And also um, as someone who's chronic pain patient, one of the things that horrified me was the Percocet denial. And <laughs> that was like, I mean, that jaw dropped, like, stomach punch like you would be willing to have like this horrible procedure that is like mind-boggling just as a drug seeker like it was it was such a it was so it was cruelly bizarre that one is a perfect example of where you're being treated as the over emotional person or, or or you know the emotional one in this situation whereas they're the ones of cool logic and reason but it is utterly irrational and illogical to think this pa- a person would come in this so for whoever is listening or watching in this particular procedure i had to have uh, a piece of my labia cut out with a knife that was not fully anesthetized it was horrifying it was so bad and so painful yeah sorry <laughs> i should have i i'm so like sensitized <laughs> to these things i should offer more like trigger warnings about these things i apologize. no i i will i will absolutely in the you don't have to worry like i just <laughs> speak freely and i will have a trigger warning in the front yeah. of this um and please don't ignore my my cringing i it, it, the whole orchid child empath thing i, I viscerally yeah, feel right. <laughs> i know and so anyways, uh, suffice to say, just a truly horrifying procedure that at the very least should have been treated with like the utmost care on the part of the doctor that, you know, I just trying to make me feel safe and comfortable and whatever. It was the opposite. He was so angry with me <laughs> while doing this horrible surgical procedure pelvically. And then afterwards, the nurse, <laughs> I'm just hysterically crying and the nurse said well which do you want you know I, I can't remember this, what, something or Percocet and I said I guess Percocet I don't take pain medications because they often just make me feel so much worse but in this case she's like you're gonna need that and so I was like fine she goes out to the doctor and comes back and says never mind he's not going to give you that because he doesn't 
prescribe pain medications to patients like you. And and it was, it turned out that he he felt that I had come up with an excuse to get Percocet, which is to have a a vaginal biopsy to get one tablet of Percocet. I mean, it's just, it's totally irrational, illogical, but, but it was being treated as if I was the person that was um, doing something that was horribly wrong and horribly uh, irrational. And it was, it was, <laughs> and so, and think so many things like that have happened. And a lot of what the book is about is that that is not, the whole point of the book is that this should be a singular story of just like one person that the medical system failed. That is like a terrible story, but like, you know, you can't help everyone. But the number of people that are like, oh, that's me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. These, I have not exactly that story, but a, a version of that. That is really what the, the book is about. And, and what the, the problem is, is that something like that should be an absolute aberration and in no way a, a a version of what so many people experience in the in the medical system and yeah it feels like your book starts out as like crimes and punishment against and from within of the chronic illness person and ends with like Alice and Persephone and like I, I wanted to start out with the crimes and punishment because there's so many points that you made that were so beautiful because I feel like there's a, a replacement of the, uh, in a lot of ways with chronic illness, there's a replacement of this like religious idea of the perfect woman of like the Virgin mm -hmm. Mary or like the perfect unattainable. You cannot be this woman. Mm -hmm. And it gets replaced with this new age idea of like, you can still be the perfect woman with your yoga and your no gluten and your no, like you can cure yourself with, crystals and positive attitude and a lot of goop products. And yeah. it's just, it's a self-hatred that like seeps in with that. And uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll let you take it from there because you, you did some beautiful, I don't want you to like give the whole book away. I'm just, um, I'm actually just coming off of like reading it for six hours straight. So <laughs> I'm a little in its world at the moment. <laughs> saturated. Uh, yeah. I'm very saturated. <laughs> uh, well, so that, so, so, essentially how the quote journey tends to go for people is you start out in regular medicine. Although I guess things have kind of changed because like wellness really has moved into the mainstream just in the last like couple of years. And so I think it's actually different from when, where I started, where it's like, you did not start with yoga. You definitely started with like urologist to rheumatologist to, you know, neurologist over and over and over again and couldn't, can't find any help. And so you end up defecting to, alternative medicine because you have to you're sick you have to find help and so you leave the system that's not able to, that's clearly not able to help you after a couple of years and there's so much about alternative medicine that is good and that is like nourishing and you know you're believed and there's i think there's a, a lot of good stuff in alternative medicine that's missing in regular medicine that is just some basic basic stuff like basic wellness stuff that's that has really been missing in our regular medical model it's it's changing a lot in the last couple of years i've had a lot of doctors actually be like what do you mean this is like alternative medicine this is this is regular we talk about this in regular medicine i'm like be, you be honest with me <laughs> How much do you, you sure maybe a little lip service and maybe you're doing that more like in the last two or three years but don't tell me that this is like 
you've been doing, you've been talking about, you know, the importance of real food and avoiding processed food and like all of that for the last 20 years. That's, that is not true. Um, but so you get into alternative medicine and there's a lot of good stuff there and it feels good. And you learn sort of how to take care of yourself better. And all of these things are like really good and really helpful. But <laughs> there is this incredibly insidious, um, as you, as you say, uh, <laughs> model of what it is to be the perfect uh, wellness woman or wellness warrior or wellness, whatever. There's a couple different sort of versions of like what it is to be, to get into wellness. And, and there is this real, I think, internal drive and external pressure to become like the perfect wellness person that is... It, it is. It's, it's exactly the, the replica of becoming the woman who like can do it all or has it all or is is perfect. And, and also, especially emotionally, it, it's um, you you get into the wellness world and you are really starting to like delve into your emotions and you feel like you're dealing with that. But it takes a while to realize that a lot of people in the wellness world, they, they are not interested in helping you to own your darker emotions. They are really interested in helping you to divorce yourself from your darker emotions. And that is, in my strong opinion, is very unhealthy. It just, it's, it's the same thing. It's like the Stepford wifeification of being like a wellness person is like this person that is like essentially an automaton that like makes green juice and does yoga and thinks positive and everything happens for a reason. And that is, that just can become, I, I just am friends with so many people. I feel like I was that person for a little while underneath that that is it is just a facade it is not real the, those people are in their real lives are really struggling are really anxious and deal with a lot of difficult stuff which is totally fine but then feel that they have to project this this sort of veneer of perfection and handling everything and being perfect most beautiful like lululemon uh you know wellness blogger person and it's just it's so destructive and it is just a mirror image so much of wellness starts to replicate the same problems that you see in you know the thing that you're defecting from like you it's like um positive thinking becomes sort of like uh, Paxil. It's like it's a way to be like hmm, negative things. Like let's just press all that down. Which isn't to say sometimes antidepressants aren't good. They are really helpful. It's just that if that's your only approach to dealing with negativity or dealing with difficult emotions, it's just it's 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 destructive. It it it, it sort of hobbles you, and in, in, you can't be your full self. You can't, and you can't, and you become deactivated. That's one of the main things: is that you just you can no longer respond in the appropriate ways. Like if something bad is happening to you, you need to be able to say like, "No, this is fucked up. <laughs> this is horrible." Without fear of being like, "Oh, that's gonna that's being a bad wellness warrior. <laughs> I'm I have anger. Like I'm you know I you know, I'm not." Uh, finding a way to let go of this like bad feeling that they're having. Sometimes you don't want to let that go. You want to use that to catalyze like the appropriate action that needs to be 
taken that's corrective. I think that that's what it is, is that when you deactivate the negative stuff, then you can't really take corrective action a lot of the time because you, you lose the ability to say no. And that that is really problematic. It's almost like just going back to like whatever system you put it in, the authoritarian idea of like, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> and that goes from, you know, everyone knows that from like bad, well, I, I'm not gonna say bad parenting, but you know, problematic parenting, problematic religious practices, you know, this idea of you don't have your own voice, just listen to the leader who in this case is wearing a white coat and is deciding mm -hmm. your treatment options. Um, that's, uh, that's kind of terrifying. Um, and your, your discussion about like the secret with like, did I attract this? Uh, hit really close to home. I have friends who are very into that. Mm -hmm. And watching them when they have had a health struggles um, descend into almost a level of insanity, trying to force positive thinking in yeah. their illness and watching their entire community dissolve because they're now toxic. Yeah, no, I, it really is one of the most insidious things because like, I, I think there's a lot of value in trying to look at like, okay, these bad things are happening, but like, what is the good that I can take from it? I think that that is like the lesson that I feel like the secret is trying <laughs> to, to, to teach you, but it has to layer on this like layer of magic on top of it that makes you into this like person that can manipulate the universe in whatever way you want, which is a very, to me, like arrogant idea. But but the, the flip side of that is that when bad things that are out of your control start to happen to you, you have been taught, you've been conditioned that that has to be because you've attracted it. And so you, the only recourse for you, if you believe that everything happens for a reason and that everything is happening because of your energy vibration, your vibrational, you know, level, the only way that you are allowed to think about it then, your illness, is that it is your fault and that there is, if you don't root out the, the bad thing, the, the the mommy issue, the daddy issue, the thing that happened to you in childhood. If you don't, if you don't figure that out, then the the thing that you're dealing with, in this case, chronic illness, um, will continue to happen, and that really and truly turns you against yourself. And that is like such a tragic, to me, that is such a horrifying thing to see happen. It happened to me. It happens to just every single person I know that's chronically sick, but is very like in the wellness community and wellness world, and they feel so badly about themselves all the time. And to me, that is like so tragic to layer that on top of being sick, which is already so difficult to, to deal with, to also tell you that this is your fault and you've brought this on yourself, which is, again, is a lot of echoing the same thing that you're hearing in, in conventional medicine as well. It's like, well, you're not actually sick. This is actually just you imagining this and, you know, are you attention seeking or you whatever <laughs> these things. And so you, there's just so many messages from both sides, from the Western approach and from the alternative approach that is really just about, <laughs> in my opinion, the practitioner not knowing what the fuck they're talking about, not being willing to say, I don't know the answer here. And that sort of, I, I think of this as like ego fragility syndrome, is that because of that ego fragility syndrome, they can't just say, I don't know, because it, it shatters the ego. 
it then has to be, uh, <laughs> it's you. It's you're the problem and you, I can't help you. You have to help you. And they wouldn't say that if they knew what to do. <laughs> they would say, oh, I can't help you. I, I know what to do here. I want you to take this pill. I want you to do this procedure. I want you to do this yoga pose. But when those things fail, then it's like, ah, oh, well, the only solution, the only answer can then be that it's, it must be you. It must be you're causing this for some reason. And I just think that that is is wrong. It's morally wrong to, to do that to people just because you, you feel uncomfortable saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, do not mean to laugh that um, I, I've no. sat in many doctor's offices with that one. Yes, it's, re- it's so real. <laughs> it really happens. <laughs> So frequently, I, I just will be sitting with doctors and I'm just like, just, let's just stop. I know what you're going to say. I, I can already sense what's happening here. Don't tell me that it's me. Just, I know that you don't know. And so we can just stop now. <laughs> and, and we don't have to go down this other really painful road of, of telling me that it's, it's all my fault in, in some way or another. I started forcing my mom not to come to my appointments uh, mm-hmm. just because she kept more hope than I did. And I could, I I'm so in tune with like seeing that glazed over look. And I'm like, and she would just keep the conversation going. I was like, we, we, we're not wasting this person's time anymore or ours. We're done. Yeah. They don't, they're not going to help me. It's okay. We're going to go now. And the doctor would be like, thank God. <laughs> just like, please, that's <laughs> yeah. all I wanted you to say. And oh. so it's just too hard for her because she's still hopeful. I, I'm, I'm good with not being hopeful. Yeah, that's funny. My mom is that way too. My mom does not quite pick up on the person glazing over and like keeps going. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> like this is no, no. Like you, it's good. It's actually going to make it worse if we keep going because when you press on them and they've already checked out, it really makes their like pushback against you as a person worse. <laughs> and that's real. <laughs> There's a point when apathy becomes hatred. And you can see it. Like you can see that moment where they hate you. It's like, wow, like I'm actually paying you for this. Like, holy fuck. Right. That is exactly correct. And it's like, and it is very difficult to not internalize that, to not somehow take that on yourself. Like you're, I'll just speak for myself. It's hard for me to not take, or it was for a long time to not take that on when I could like feel that they hated me. And I was like, oh, I must, I need to be nicer, better, gooder. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and like really became like the model patient. But (laughs) the better of a patient that I became, like the more organized I was, okay. Like I was like bring everything in a way that I felt was like really well organized and like just like really just the bare bones so they didn't get overwhelmed. And like, so it was just really streamlined. They were like, man, I mean, you're really obsessive compulsive. Like, what's this? And I'm like, no, I, d- I did this because <laughs> I kind of said it was too much. And, I just, and it's just that you're just caught in this place of if you come to them with your real symptoms, which in this, with the mysterious illnesses, like that is one of the problems is that it is like symptom explosion. There's so much that happens that you feel like this can't be, <laughs> but it's real. It's like, if you just, if you're me and you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these people, that is just, that's the norm. If that is not strange, it is not you, you're not crazy. Like that is part of what's going on here. And that sucks. Not for the doctor for you. (laughs) Like, that is not overwhelming for the doctor. It is overwhelming for the patient. And it is 
crazy that we have it backwards that like patients feel bad that they have so many symptoms and that they're going to like annoy their doctors with all of these symptoms like that that is you would never do that with a different with, with with illnesses that we take seriously and that we march for and that we have ribbons for and that we do all of this stuff you would never do that you'd be like oh my god i can't believe you have to deal with so many problems but in this case it's it's reversed it's um the more you have wrong the less they take you seriously and it's just it's it's horrible <laughs> i'll compound that with vaginal issues yes like it's um uh, vaginal issues i feel like there's a certain kind of I, yeah, go ahead and write me hate mail on this one. Cause I will stand by this, but I think there's a certain kind of man who gets attracted to doing, um, any sort of pelvic medicine. I'm sure there's some male doctors out there who are doing it for the right reasons. Cheers. Salute. I haven't met you yet because <laughs> nor have any of my friends. Um, so good. You know, one that's awesome. I'm so happy that he is there. Yeah. I'm so happy that there's a good male doctor. I have never met him and none of my friends have. And almost all of us have had children. So we've had plenty of pelvic stuff go on. And I feel like there's a misogyny level of like, I hate women. And I, I cannot explain to you how many horrible pap smears I've had and how many horrible I've had a similar procedure to what you had done. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had catheters when I was a small child. Like I've had mm-hmm. all these things done and they were cruel. Like, and they would make jokes about like these things. Like you better get used to it, sweetheart. Like that kind of, like it was really viscerally cruel and my mom had the same things my aunts have had the same treatment and I just I'm really afraid that that the um the men who get attracted to gynecology and urology for women I'm kind of terrified that a lot of them hate us yeah I mean that's something that I don't want that to be true but I certainly have I've definitely experienced that myself and I've talked to other friends of mine who I, I do find that to be less true for younger doctors. Like the one doctor that I have that's male, that's a, you're, uh, I guess he's a pelvic pain specialist. He's not this way. And he's the youngest of all of them. And my friends who are physicians, I've talked to them about exactly what you're saying. I'm like, am I, is this just like me and my own trauma about all of this, like misperceiving this? And they, everyone that I've talked to, they're like, nope. <laughs> it is, that's like a, that is a sort of unspoken issue it's not it's obviously not not all it's just like hashtag not all men it's like it's not it's not <laughs> all urologists gynecologists it's, it's not and I don't want to I, I don't want to like paint with too, too broad a brush but if this is something that like every woman that you know every woman that I know and my doctor friends are all acknowledging like oh no that's my experience or that's something that we see a lot in medicine like that's a huge problem especially for something that's not, we're not talking about like your shoulder doctor <laughs> or your ear doctor. Like this is like the most vulnerable, like it is the easiest way I think to traumatize a patient by mm-hmm. doing something wrong, by acting wrong emotionally, by getting it wrong just technically. And so it should be the, again, it should be the opposite. Should, these should be the most caring, the most empathetic, the most um, emotionally equipped physicians out there and it's the it's the opposite uh, yeah I mean it, the the hashtag not all men like that's awesome you're not one of them yeah. you might want to talk to your friends immediately yeah. Yeah. like now like if you are a male doctor and you're like this isn't me I would never do that 
that's awesome. Go talk to your colleagues. Like, do not let them get away with shit. I know this is like some sort of like weird secret society among doctors that they will not call each other out. It has to end. We're dying and we're traumatized. Like this has to stop. You can't just let someone go on abusing people. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing. Sorry, that was my little like step box to get up on. (laughs) I can't walk today. So I will stand on my soapbox here. here. (laughs) I'm here here for it. I I think that you're not wrong. And it's, it's one of those sort of trickier areas because, you know, I don't, I I don't want to like alienate anyone. I don't want anyone to feel so attacked that they can't like come in and and change. Right. But I, but I also, but (laughs) that's one of the problems is that you, you can't have a culture. It's the, like I was just thinking of when you were talking about it's you see the same thing with like uh, police and like that there mm-hmm. is like a, when something is wrong, instead of dealing with that wrong thing, you know, they close ranks around that person and don't, there is very little accountability and it's to, you know, it's for a variety of reasons, but it, <laughs> that just cannot be the way that it is with these people who are, there to protect us like it's a, the, the analogy I'm always using is like firemen it's like okay so if a fireman goes into a burning building and they save 100 school children like yes unequivocally heroic and this is the same for doctors who are constantly doing heroic incredible things for patients all the time and they deserve the I think enormous respect that we afford to doctors but if a fireman if it turns out that there was like 20 people in that building and they saw them and they're like, yeah, I don't know, not them. <laughs> I'm not saving them. Like, no, thank you. And it was women or it was like a minority or whatever. For some bad reason, they decided not to save those people. That you're not a hero anymore. You don't get to do that. You don't get, it doesn't matter how much good you do. If you're doing active harm to any subset of your patients or the people that you're trying to help, that is a huge problem, and you you just you're not insulated by the good good work that you do. You have to be you have to remain accountable, and I do think that's a big problem in in medicine. Yeah, I, I think accountability is one of the the things. Like just in absolute general society, we have to really come to terms with, and we have to be able to be held accountable without flipping out too. I mean, I've certainly made my missteps. Like if you ever want to get a rhino tough skin do a public podcast. It's really fun. You will absolutely get called out. You will, you will come to terms with some of the worst parts of yourself that you are not as happy with. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely something, but it's also really kind of useful to get the feedback and to hear from communities that you don't actually often, like if you're, if you're woomy part four, you know, or five, like you have in your book, you're not getting out. So mm-hmm. you aren't necessarily like clicking in with other groups of people. So it's really, you know, helpful to hear from other sides and to take that in and go, oh, okay. Wow. I had no idea. Like, yeah. Yeah. And exactly. And we all, right. Exactly. Like, that's a really good point that it's not like just doctors have to do this or the police. It's like, we, we all do this. It's just that there is a real discrepancy between patients. I feel like do this constantly constantly (laughs) like what am I doing wrong like what have I done how could I do things differently how do I approach the next person better and be a better version of myself and so that's I think why I just get so frustrated where I just see the physicians that I go to over and over and over again not taking any responsibility for this at all and it especially with so a WOMI for anyone watching a WOMI 
is what I call a woman with a mysterious illness. It's a, it's a poor acronym. And it's just one of this, this family of problems, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, polycystic ovary syndrome, mast cell activation, postural orthostatic tachycardia. It's like this one, when you have one of these problems, like mold illness, gut health, on and on, it's this family of neuroendocrine immune problems that clearly, in my opinion, all goes together, is all related and interconnected. And it is astonishing that there are so many of us, because there are so many of us, that we are all rejected by the medical algorithm. Like when you go to the doctor and you have one of these problems, even though it's not a rare problem, you are treated in the way that we've been discussing, that you're treated in this way that it's not real, you're a malingerer, you're wasting time, et cetera. And that, it'd be one thing if it was rare, if you really were the only person, but like that, the whole point of the book is, and, 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 and podcasts like this and, and activism around invisible illness and chronic illness, is this is not in any way rare. There is no excuse for treating, for continuing to turn a blind eye to this. It's not like it's just this like one-off event, which is how you feel for a long time. You're like, wow, I must be so broken. I must be so unique that all of these experts can't figure it out. And that's not true. It's like you start to meet people that are like you, other Womis, and it's it's this huge invisible sort of secret society that is it's bananas how big it is because as a physician you would think i would think that you begin to see this pattern and you're like oh, oh okay i thought that that was psychological but there are so many of these women and some men and it's this it's such a predictable presentation of symptoms and of types of problems like it's the same sort of categories of problems over and over and over again just in different combinations it just it it shocks me that it still is like rejected by the algorithm in medicine. That's just like, oh, I know what this is, this female sadness syndrome. I'm not gonna send you to. I like the yuppie flu. I thought that was that's particularly <laughs> particularly good there. Um, you brought up a really interesting um, point, not in your uh, lots in your book, but um, in your show notes. Which you know, again, if you go over to our website, Invisible Not Broken, um, you'll see the show notes, which are really well written. I really liked yours. Um, but you brought up something that I hadn't even considered about this COVID um, that we might be seeing a whole lot more of um, of people who are going to have chronic fatigue and other chronic issues because even if they're not symptomatic, they may have been carrying the COVID virus. Mm-hmm. Or they may have been mildly sick, or they may have been very sick and recovered. And these, some of these things can come on after a virus. Yeah. So it's very common for all of these problems that we're talking about. I didn't mention before. It's very common to also have like an autoimmune disease sort of mixed in with with all these problems. And it's incredibly common for autoimmunity, certainly chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, uh, fibromyalgia to come on after a major triggering event. And often that's like a really nasty viral infection. That's just something you see in the literature and in any patient community, I mean, over and over and over again, to, to the point where a lot of the research, uh, I, I think this has changed in the last maybe five or seven years, but initially a lot of the research was trying to figure out what virus was causing chronic fatigue syndrome because it seemed there's so many patients that got sick with this problem after a viral infection. It, I think the evolved understanding of that is that it's it's not that there's one virus that causes 
these types of problems, it's that um, a variety of different major stressors to the system can trigger the same neuroendocrine immune cascade that is I'm not going to go into all the science about that, but there's, but it's essentially like a type of neuroinflammation and endocrine dysregulation that can lead to all of these different permutations of this problem. And so it does stand to reason that there is probably going to be a post-COVID um, syndrome where you see uh, essentially it's going to be MECFS. And I, I actually feel, I, I sort of feel like <laughs> pre-enraged and pre-hopeful. <laughs> like I'm like, maybe on the hope side, maybe because we're all looking at this and every, the whole world's attention is focused on this. If there really is something like a post COVID syndrome that looks just like myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, if that happens, then I think there is a, a higher likelihood that we will take it seriously and won't just be like, Oh, that's probably just a bunch of malingerers. I think that's, that's unlikely just because it's not all just locked away in the privacy of a million different doctor's offices. It'll just be in the public eye and that's really helpful. Um, uh, but I, and, and so if we take it seriously, then I think that that may actually open the door to like real funding and to like really taking seriously, like, well, what happens when, what is it that's happening when, um, you know, after this major viral infection that is causing this person to be sick that actually doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the virus itself the virus is just the trigger and so i i hope that that to me seems like one small kernel of hope that because the big problem with mecfs and all of these problems is that they are i mean catastrophically underfunded it's when you look at the numbers for these things it's like it it is so heartbreaking and upsetting that because it's if you looked at it on a graph you know, in like, you've got, you know, your, your bars for like cancer is like, you know, 6 billion and AIDS is like 6 billion. <laughs> Chronic fatigue syndrome wouldn't even register on that graph. It wouldn't get a bar. It would just be like a little blip that you couldn't see with the naked eye. It's so small. And so I am very sad for the patients that will have to go through something like a post-COVID syndrome or MECFS. But I do think that it may be the thing that actually opens up the, the, purse at NIH to study something like this as to what's going on, to really try the big studies to, to look at what the treatments could be, because it does just have not been done. And it's because they don't, you can't, you can't just like magic a medication out of nowhere. You have to put an enormous amount of money into it. Like that's, that's how it works. <laughs> like the whole reason these are mysterious problems, the only reason is because they haven't been studied. Like that's not, it's not because they're so impossible to, to understand and they like, you know, exceed, you know, the great minds of science. No, it's that nobody is actually doing the robust scientific research that yields, you know, a robust scientific understanding of the, the disease. That That is the reason. So I, I, I'm worried for these, this new, um, generation of mummies like post COVID. And I also think that the stress of the whole situation, because, you know, one of the things we write about in the book, I write about in the book, is that stress really does, it's not just psychological stress, but stress clearly is at the center of a lot of these mystery illness problems. It's, it's not just psychological stress, it's the stress of having disrupted gut flora and too many chemicals, probably, and just a bunch of other modern phenomena. 
And so I think that adding on this tremendous unprecedented stress of, of COVID and, and isolation and sheltering in place and all of that, I will not be surprised if we see a, a, a real uptick in a lot of these only problems, just because we know that stress is so central to a lot of them and, and cortisol dysregulation and things like that. So, so I, I worry for that a lot. And I also feel like maybe because it's so out in the open, it will actually yield some a better conversation, more funding, and just less opportunity for anyone to to go the coward's route and tell these people that they're making it up and that they are, you know, the, all the things we've talked about, that, that, that it's the patient's fault. It's not. I vote that we call the new secret society the Yellow Wallpaper Society. Hmm. Yes, <laughs> that's one of my favorite short stories ever. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And one of my my other little fervent hopes is as we've made so many inroads into since everyone's working from home, everyone's studying from home. I'm really hoping that when um, people try to start going back to normal, these um, infrastructures that have been set up don't go away. I I really hope that we're going to still be able to work from home yeah. for those of us who can't be out in the world that will still be able to study and go to school from home. Like I'm really hoping this doesn't stop for, for those of us who don't get to come along with everyone outside again. I, I really hope so too. There's so many things there that's like, I really hope, I hope that telemedicine sticks because that's really helpful for chronically mm -hmm. people because it's so hard to go to the doctor. I really hope that like the door is right, like just propped open forever for telework for people who want to, but also need to work from home, that it's like very clear that you absolutely can do that. <laughs> like that that's, yeah. that we can bring people into the workforce who otherwise are not able to work like that. That's good for everyone. That is good for them. And go to school, college. Like <laughs> Exactly. And so, yeah, I, I hope that some of those things happen. And I also hope that there's like greater just empathy from <laughs> I, I speak from personal experience, a lot of like, not close friends, but like the next ring out of friends of people that I know throughout my illness have said things to me like, when I'm like, I'm homebound. They're like, oh, you get to work from home. You're so lucky. <laughs> or like a variety, of, <laughs> a variety of horrible things that like now that they're all experiencing it, you know, like, or, or like when I was like horrifically isolated and like literally didn't see not one friend, not, not one <laughs> for a year, like, except my mom, like that is, that is very abnormal. That's like castaway. <laughs> like that is not normal. But the people around me that would like hear that would get like a message from my mom, letting them know that this was happening. I would get messages from people that were just like, you know, I'm a real hermit these days too. And like, I just like also don't want to go to parties anymore. And I, so I get it. <laughs> I was like, I Oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> yeah, it was so, it was so upsetting anyway. So, so I hope that the experience of like what it's like to be trapped inside and it is, you do not want to be trapped inside what it is like to see your job go up in smoke or to just be living in a, a place of extreme economic anxiety to have the government not doing nearly enough as it as it relates to your health problem to have the testing be in a state of chaos and disarray you know like all of these things are so upsetting and they're 
they are upsetting for all people with chronic illnesses constantly. But people, if I would talk to somebody about that previously and be like, yeah, the government doesn't do anything for chronic fatigue syndrome or something like that, they'd be like, well, you know, you can't do everything. And they have so many things that they have to study. And like, but they would never say that now, you know, they would never say that when it is their own. If they can study erectile dysfunction, they can study. <laughs> Let me start in. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, that gets so much funding. Like, <laughs> well, the, the thing, the, the single study that made me the most mad in the whole time I've been sick is the one, just, it's a very small thing, but it's the one study where they did on male, um, uh, birth control and they stopped it after a couple of months. Oh my was- fucking God. <laughs> my 13 year old had like that reaction I just gave you. It was like my 13 year old times five when she heard that she was like, are you yeah. kidding me? That's not a thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, sweetie. I'm, I'm sorry. So angry. I couldn't, I still think about it all the time because it's like the one time they've tried to study this for men. They stopped at me and were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is their discomfort. They are not comfortable. They are not comfortable. And I was like, are you joking? Like that is, that is what it is to be a woman with any, like, oh my, it just made me, it just. Was that Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. That that really does reduce it all down into just like one example of just. Pinpoint of medical misogyny. Yeah. (laughs) It it, it just is very upsetting. And uh, yeah. It's, I, I, I would say that I do see glimmers of this changing. Like I had a female pain doctor last year where she gave me a medication. I responded quite badly to it. And normally if I respond badly to something, my pain medication doctor, who prior to that had always been male, they would be like, oh, you guys, I know I get it. You're so sensitive. Like, well, just so condescending and mean and blah, blah, blah. And fine, if you don't want to take it, I'm like, I'm not saying I don't want to take it. I'm saying that I responded badly to it. Like, could we titrate it differently? You know, just completely normal response. And they were such assholes about it. And then I had this female uh, physician, and uh, I responded badly. And I came in, and I I was apologetic. I was like, it went really badly. I'm so sorry. Like, is there something else that we could do? And she was like, first of all, do not apologize to me. (laughs) She was like, second of all, don't you know? She's like, all drugs are basically tested pretty much exclusively on middle-aged white men. She's like, so mm-hmm. if you are not responding. Until 1991, it was exclusive. <laughs> yes. And she's like, so if you're not responding to this in like the typical way, that just means that we either need to play around with it and see if we can find the right dose for you, or it just doesn't work for you. And that is not your fault. And I was like, God bless you. <laughs> I can't. Have you seen the movie Labyrinth? With David Bowie and oh gosh, sorry, one of my favorite movies ever. But like, medical stuff reminds me of Labyrinth, where like you don't know who's helping you. Everyone you meet should be helping you, but has their own issues and motives, and you, there's no rules. And the second yeah. you think you have the rules figured out, everything shifts again. And yeah. the, like, and then you're putting the oubliette like out in the middle of nowhere, alone and isolated. Like, you yeah. might want to just watch it one more time because it's so I, good. Will, but will, 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 if you just look at it through like the chronic illness lens, it's like this. I know it wasn't, but it feels like an allegory, like all the way through. Well, but I think because I've had people say that to me before about labyrinth when I talk about descending into the underworld and like kind of like that that archetype. They're like, oh, it's like labyrinth, and like it's like where there isn't like a direct 
linear path through everything. It's like incredibly disorienting. Like you're constantly being, you're constantly lost and finding your way again. You don't know who the helpers are. Like you're, you're not with like you and your merry band of like hobbits. It's not, it is not hero's <laughs> journey. It's like you, there are other people on the path. Oh my God. I hadn't even thought about that. The hero heroine journey. You're right. Labyrinth's the heroine journey. Yes. Yeah. That's what I mean. And wow. I, so I have to watch it again, but I have had people say that to me and just like hearing you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. It's, that's like, it's, it, that's the, the labyrinth is like a, a classic uh, version of the, a, a depiction of descending into the underworld. It's descending into this, uh, into the maze, into the place where nothing makes sense anymore and everything is dark. And, uh, and that's very different from the <laughs> upper world journey, which is also hard, but just totally go slay the dragon and get that ring into that (laughs) yeah if you think that you're on that journey which you probably do because everybody is like constantly trying to tell you that you're on that journey you are going to feel like a failure you're going to feel like (laughs) you you are trying to slay the dragon of elmas and you can't and so therefore something is wrong with you you're a bad hero you're the worst harry potter and you failed (laughs) voldemort is totally going to jump on you (laughs) that snake is eating you no jimmy is going to eat you (laughs) and that's what it feels like and you don't it's not conscious to you because a lot archetypes in all these stories are generally not conscious. Like they're not really meant to be like up at the front of, well, for, in this culture, they're not meant to be sort of up at the front of your consciousness. Like a lot of other, like older cultures, like these stories are right at the front of your consciousness. I think to help guide you to kind of like know what to do and, and what story you're in. But in our culture, it's not, but it's really ingrained in you. Every movie like screenwriters sit there with joseph campbell's book on their desk to be like okay here's how you plot a mm-hmm. this is what a story is this is the monument and it's like that's that's wrong <laughs> that is, <laughs> is not just the one story that is a really compelling story but the story of the descent into the underworld and this more cyclical feminine dark um story about the bowels <laughs> and about the bowels of the earth and the culture and your own bowels like that is a very old uh story that shows up in every culture and is definitely the story of illness it's, it is the story of uh trauma and, and really more than that of systemic trauma of something that is not just happening to one person but is really the, the result of like something wrong in the root system and that it and then that is what I think is so much what this initiation is about. It is about going down into the sick root system to see what's wrong there. And that that is not usually healed by like going through it one time. It's really like a lot of cyclical descents and looking again and again and again at what's wrong and, and fixing a little bit more each time. Like I think that that's a very, uh, to me, that is a much healthier and more true to life story of how you fix a lot of like really difficult systemic problems they're not fixed by just the one (laughs) march on the capitol (laughs) or like the one legislative victory it just is not how it works it's like so many different collective actions taken over time and that is i can be a deflating thing to realize because if you've been thinking like, oh, I'm going to fix whatever problem you've set out to fix like sexism, like that can be like very disappointing to be like, oh, I'm not going to fix it. But when you, I think, reorient yourself to think about fixing like the small piece in front of you that you can fix, it's even just like in your interpersonal relationships, like 
and that that's important and that that's really that is part of how the whole thing starts to get better i think that that is to me much more helpful and much healthier way to think about the use of what's happening to you <laughs> not like why it's happening to you i like there's no reason for why it's happening to you but like what you can make out of it it's not to slay all of illness or help all women or fix chronic illness you know maltreatment but to i think just start to work on like what you can that's like right in front of you that that to me is like has been very very helpful to understand that that it that's how any of these big problems ever get fixed is like really just dealing with what you can deal with right in front of you and and then link arms with as many people as you can that are that are like you and as the collective that's how you make yourself big in this in a system in which you're quite small is linking together with all of these other people that are similar to you and then that that is how you can be strong and big and go up against these big systems that are sick and are hurting you have you heard the um story behind well-behaved women rarely make history no i know that quote yeah the quote is like it's always like that idea of like go be may west go be (laughs) the rabble rouser but the woman who wrote the um it was from i think her thesis and she said, that wasn't my point. It's awesome. If, you know, you want to go out and be the rabble, cheers, salute, blessed be, mazel tov, go, go do it. Um, but so what I was trying to say was that there's a lot of women who, even in their, their assigned roles, they were still making change. Like they were doing it in their quiet way. And there's a place for quiet women or women who are introverts or women and not just women, not just owners of ovaries, but like, um, I'm just going with what she was talking about from her thesis, but like anyone who is quiet, marginalized, introverted, or forced into introversion or quietness, there's still a place for radical acts, even within the bounds you're given. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and yeah, it, community is everything. <laughs> it is. It, it really is. It is how you become strong when you, the reality is you have, so, there is real weakness in your body, in your life, but like you can gain so much strength by like connecting yourself to all of these other people. It's just very difficult to do. And it's not valorized. Like it's not, it's, as you said, like it's these like smaller, quieter um, lives are not um, lifted up as these, you know, important ways to be a person, but, but especially a woman, like it's like the only stories of like, women that we hear about that are powerful are always they have to be in this either this like very traditionally like male role or hunger games yeah <laughs> hunger games exactly like like they have to be you know like an arrow wielding sword wielding gun toting you know uh, male hero with with boobs but 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 there's but there's so many different ways that you see that it's like another really common depiction of that that's a little older is just the tomboys that that that's like the the, the all, all those were all of my favorite female characters mm-hmm. growing up it was always this this girl that was just like uh girl stuff i hate girl stuff and like i did not realize the whole time until the last few years like how damaging that that was to like really denigrate and diminish the feminine and all of those feminine things and that I was had just 
I, I just did not realize that I was doing that. I thought that I was being feminist. I thought that I was being like pro-woman by denigrating all of these feminine things. And I really think that it's just much more complicated than that. And that it's, it doesn't, again, this is a hugely thorny conversation. <laughs> and like, I'm good I, with thorny <laughs> conversations. I am, I am all about, <laughs> I'm all about the thorns. Yeah. Talking about sex and gender, I mean, it's just an incredibly, I think, complex and unresolved topic that's really important that we're all starting to talk about more, and that's really good. But one of the things that I really think about a lot is just, I, I do think that there is, not for all women, but for a lot of women, there are these, whether it's social conditioning or whether it's biological, that you do have these inclination towards more feminine, like, impulses but they're so culturally denigrated that like the things that are more natural to you you start to push down and you start to make bad and make wrong and thinking that you're getting ahead by adopting all of these more masculine qualities and the problem is is that if they are more innate to you regardless of like how they got there if it's socially conditioned that way if it's your soul if it's your biology no matter what if it's just how you are in the world and the world thinks that those are all second class values like you are screwed <laughs> like you cannot be yourself and the culture starts to become like very warped and like we, everyone's starting to really lean in the direction of only valuing these masculine values and that is I mean I think that we see that right now I mean I just really think that like that is like our current political situation is just like the embodiment, just like the most toxically masculine to, to a caricature degree, like just this is what happens if you like only value these values, like it just becomes so brittle and so horrifying and so monstrous that it falls apart. And and so and it's important to not to me to not make sure you're not doing that in your own life, so that you're not <laughs> pushing down nourishment and care and community and uh rest and taking time off and cycles versus linear achievement and just there's so many different things that are associated with the classically feminine values versus masculine values and that i just think at the very least that is something that's important to make conscious to oneself to just like explore and to think about regardless of what you think about you know what what biology has to do with it just even thinking about those those values uh, as masculine and feminine values, I think it's really useful to become conscious of like, oh wow, <laughs> if you put them in a ledger next to each other, like I am really, I like all these feminine values, but do I employ them in my life? Like, do I do I feel confident about like presenting as like a caring, nurturing, nourishing person versus like a striving, uh, confident, like, like achieving, high achieving, like, you know, the person that's going like on the, the ladder of accomplishment in this really linear way. Like, I think that people feel so much shame around when they get knocked off of that ladder and start going descending again into the underworld again. And I'm like, oh, I failed. I didn't, I didn't do the thing that people are expecting of me, which is to beat my illness. Like that is what we expect of all people. For illness, and it's so fucked up because a lot of illnesses, you can't 
beat and it's not your fault if it gets worse again and you get worse again and you regress and like there should be no shame around that it should be the opposite we should like circle around those people with as much care and nourishment as possible to help them from falling too deep but by themselves because that is what's going to happen if they feel so much shame that they don't reach out to people to get the support that they need and yeah yeah about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so at all. Um, I, I find it really insane that we gender um, traits, like mm-hmm. that generosity would be feminine or mm-hmm. that like kindness would be feminine and striving is massive. Like that is, that's just the most um, mind screw for me that like these things are, gen- and it's not saying that you, like, um, it's just generally how people seem to view these things. And I, I just don't get it because to me, it's it, just personally, like um, generosity and kindness is incredibly brave to me. Like Mr. Rogers is brave to me. Like Steve Irwin is brave to me. Like uh, the the people who just take off the armor and they're like, you know, I'm just going to meet the world with kindness and compassion and I'm leaving the armor behind. And that is an act of um, sheer bravery in my mind. Like I, that that's way more brave to me than I'm going to put on all my rage armor and I'm going to go out and slay the world and I'm going to own it. I'm going to kill it. I, I'm sorry, I'm from the Silicon Valley. So I'm going to kill it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to dominate it. I mm-hmm. uh, yeah, all, all of those words. Over sustainability. It's Holy. Yeah. My entire professional career was pretty much in the Silicon Valley. I was an artist in the Silicon Valley, but I worked with all the, the companies and the people in the companies, awesome people. But that culture of I'm killing it and literally killing themselves, like just 80 hour work weeks and just drink at night to like, as like your way to unwind with your friends. Like it was, it was a very, uh, to me felt very toxic and I was desperately happy when, I mean, weirdly, I, when I got so sick, I had to quit my business and I had to move to uh, like a very different space it, it was really actually calming to not be around all that like must get newest tesla must get newest like everything and mm-hmm. that that little rat race it was nice to embrace something calmer mm-hmm. yeah yeah but i do think that it's just such a complicated conversation because like that behavior they're talking about in silicon valley is overwhelmingly male <laughs> and defecting into the world of wellness is overwhelmingly female <laughs> and so so again it's like it's it's hard to it, i think it's very difficult because not enough research has been done in these areas and so i think it's very difficult to say like well is that does that have anything to do with you know the differences between estrogen and testosterone etc but I think it is, regardless of why that is, I do think it is important to to recognize that, like, we do gender those um, those traits, and you do see a lot of these more masculine behaviors, like in men, and a lot of these more feminine behaviors in women, and that it is not a surprise that we valorize all those masculine traits and we really push down all those feminine traits, and so kind of no matter where you come down on like whether if gender is just a total social construct like even if you think that we've constructed it so that we associate those qualities with women right now and so therefore those qualities are all secondary and you're walking around as like this defective secondary person that has all the bad wrong qualities and that's hugely problematic and 
and it makes you, I think, devalue yourself as right, as not brave, as not strong, as not courageous. And that's completely incorrect. Like nourishment and care and uh, empathy and compassion and all these sort of stereotypically feminine things, those are hugely brave and important and strong and courageous. Like it's incredibly difficult to be emotionally fluent. Like it's much easier to be like, an emotional idiot <laughs> like and, hey you can get elected on that platform that platform yes. will get you right to the top <laughs> yes and so but we don't think of it that way we're like oh people are interested in like exploring their emotions are you know navel gazers and are you know woo and like all this stuff and it's like actually a lot of those people are some of the most like emotionally competent people out there and so and and that's and and powerful because of that and so Anyway, so there's, there's a lot to be said about just looking at this area because I think it is unconscious for a lot of people that they're devaluing pieces of themselves that um, they just think that they're achieving. They're, they're just going for like the values that we all value, like linear achievement and growth and dominance and all of these things and don't realize that they're actually they, that there are, there are some gendered aspects to that and that it's at least worth looking at kind of no matter where you come down on the um, nature versus nurture <laughs> biological aspect. One of my favorite stories about this was a man who was uh, talking about his daughter who was at the um, the princess stage. And it's, um, I, I was a teacher for years. I've raised seven children that weren't my own. I have two of my own. And I could pretty much promise you like 90% of the girls I've raised and um, taught there's a stage where it is a glitter it is a glitter bomb and it is pink and it is purple and it is everywhere it is all consuming and uh being from like the the child of the i was born in the 70s so i was raised baby x and you are not gonna do this god damn it you will yeah. you will march um and so when my own child got there i felt very similarly um just you know prepare her for the world prepare her to be strong to be a strong woman and um this guy came out with this blog and he said his daughter hit that stage and she wanted to be a princess. And he's like, and I do not disapprove. And here's what we do. We sit down every day with the newspaper curated and I am her Royal advisor. And <laughs> she dresses up as her princess self. I wear my, my advisor hat and we go through the newspaper and we talk about what her subjects are dealing with. And then we talk about how we as a royal family <laughs> can help the subjects of the world, what charities we can donate to, how how she can make, what decisions would she make if she was on this committee? What would she advise them? She could write to the council members of the city she would advise. And I was like, that's a brilliant way to to lift up that instead of seeing princess as weak as, you know, Disney. <laughs> Thank you, Disney. Um uh instead of seeing it that way like to turn it and turn that compassion into a strength and yeah. i that was one of the most beautiful stories i'd ever read that really changed my shift to parenting i love that because it's like one of the things that like really does bother me i listen to so many like smarty pants podcasts that are like all these people that i super respect but whenever they get to the these issues they're like uh like this is this article about like women being like interested in like love and nourishment and compassion and care. It's all bullshit. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but those are like incredible qualities. And like, what if you are seeing that a little bit more in women for whatever reason, like, shouldn't we want to like lean into that? And like, 
and like lift those women up and be like, wow, <laughs> these women are so amazing and look at what they're doing and, and look at this like different type of leadership and, and just, I don't know, I, there's just this like inherent knee-jerk like need to dissociate with things that are feminine that it really, I know from my own experience, does just come with not wanting to be perceived as weak yourself. And so you're like, well, yeah, I don't know. I'll go in for any of that compassion stuff. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, it's so, it just, I don't know. It's a very complex topic that I don't think has like a, well, women are this way, men are this way. Like that is obviously untrue. There's a lot of diversity. And, but I still think it is worth, thinking about and talking about and studying more and, and I'm, I'm interested I, I want to know like I'm really interested in like people who are who feel more femme I, I I'm so interested in like that person's biology I'm like I want to know like is there is there any overlap between like somebody that has like that is born to the male sex but is presenting or feels more feminine and like are there are, is there overlap like is are there biological overlap because that's interesting and that's important. That's like important to dignify and to understand that there's a lot of diversity and a lot of differences. And, or if that's not there and that doesn't exist, it's still important to, to dignify and to, and to lift up. I just, I just think it's, I don't know. I, I there, there's just, it's such a fractured, contentious area of conversation, which I understand because it <laughs> tends to be like used against each other. And, I just am. I, I I just am really interested in like having more conversations around this that are not that are not using gender or gendered stuff against one another, but to really like look at those differences, no matter who they show up in, and like and dignify them and use them, use all of our differences to 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 make things better, <laughs> to 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 make things more balanced and richer. And I don't know. I just. No, I hear what you're saying. I, like one of the things that's one of the greatest signifiers of young um, people who have testicles uh, be growing up to becoming misogynistic or not is the greatest signifiers how um, they see the male figure in their life treating women. Mm-hmm. That is that's one of the greatest like signifiers on whether they're and not necessarily whether they'll be soft or gentle, but just whether mm-hmm. they will be. Um, yeah, we'll just leave that <laughs> there. But I- Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, Be kind, be gentle, be a badass. This is unprecedented times. So I don't think those uh, three terms have ever been more important. Um, If we offended you as we were discussing gender, um, we're doing our best with our language. Um, This is just how we're processing everything. If you have your own thoughts on this, we would actually really love to hear them. Um, Comment below, um, especially if you head over to our invisiblenotbroken.com website. I leave my comments open. Um, as long as you are not being abusive, um, please leave comments and talk to us. This is an open dialogue, um, and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. We're going to have part two coming up, um, hopefully in a week or two. And during part two, we are going to be talking about the writing process when you have chronic illness, which as a writer, I was very curious about. And I loved the answers. I actually found her answers incredibly helpful on how to write while dealing with chronic illness. And uh, we also talk about gardening tips. Uh, We discussed the issues with silver lining and um, how to hold space for someone who has just told you something very intense. Um, 
please turn in next week and hopefully we'll have Sarah on the show um, more regularly. So thank you everyone. Again, I just need to say it one more time. Be kind, be gentle, and in whatever way works for you, be a badass.